we have found that COVID, again, just underscored the real ethos behind our work, which is that we need to really seriously look at supporting local food as a means of resilience. And we've been sort of spouting this line since we started, and most of it was around climate change and the weather and how you know local food systems can be more resilient in the face of changing climate and more erratic weather. And now we have the pandemic. Welcome to the Virginia Foodie Podcast, where we lift the lid on the craft food industry and tell the stories behind the good food, good people, and good brands that you know and love. If you've ever come across a yummy food brand and wondered, how did they do that? How did they turn that recipe into a successful business? Then we've got some stories for you. Hello, foodie fans. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Riley, the founder of Foodshed Capital, an organization committed to funding an equitable and regenerative local food economy. I reached out to Michael after hearing him speak at a regional event. I was captivated by his mission-driven lending and how much of his work is aimed at the heart of changing our food supply, the small farmers and food businesses that are committed to changing how food arrives at our tables. They focus primarily on biological farming and related businesses who are working to reduce the use of chemicals, balancing the soil to produce healthy, pest, and disease-resistant crops. And when fed to livestock, these same crops lead to healthy and productive animals. Since their first loan was made in January of 2019, Foodshed Capital has contributed over $600,000 in low or no interest loans to farms and food enterprises. And 85% of these loans have gone to businesses owned at least in part by women and people of color. This is a slow money approach to making change. But these low-cost loans aren't just handouts. They come with assistance in pointing the way forward for sustainable agriculture. One of roughly a 1,000 CDFIs in the United States, this Community Development Financial Institution, or CDFI, not only provides funding, but also assists businesses by connecting owners to affordable and often free resources that they can leverage to help them succeed and profit while working to pay back their loan. Michael's work connects to my work in that we're all trying to make these small businesses smart businesses who are positioned not just to survive, but to thrive. I learned a lot during our conversation, and I hope you find it as interesting and informative as I have. Well, hi, Michael. Thanks for joining me today. You're welcome, George. Great to be here. Well, before we get started, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your role in the organization you represent? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I am the co-founder and executive director of an organization called Foodshed Capital. We are a nonprofit loan fund that provides financing to small-scale, organic, biological farms that have difficulty accessing capital. So we're a three-year-old organization. We're based uh, right here in central Virginia. Our official office is in Richmond, but I work out of my home in Charlottesville. So I saw on your website that you provide financial stewardship to farms and food enterprises. So are you strictly in farming? No, no. We work mostly with farms. But yeah, as our website says, we work with other food-related businesses that are non-farm businesses. So over the last three years that we've been making loans, we've worked with a restaurant and some value-added businesses, a bakery, a couple food hubs, 
So we definitely embrace other types of businesses. Our main requirement when working with a non-farm business is that the business does support the local food system in some way. So whether that's, you know, sourcing ingredients or a restaurant, you know, sourcing a lot of their ingredients. And then, of course, a food hub, you know, would sort of be self-explanatory in terms of, you know, helping to support the local food system. Oh, that's really cool because I have often thought of you as just being like farm support, but it's nice that you do sort of those value-added businesses in the local agriculture. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, you know, again, it's we're here to support the local food system. And of course, you know, producers are important, but if they don't have somebody to sell to, it makes it very difficult. So, you know, really trying to support those businesses along the value chain are really important. Well, I've been asking people the same question because the pandemic really had a big impact on all food industries, particularly restaurants, but all of them. And I'm just curious, like what happened for your group, your organization last year? And this is going to be airing in the fall. So we're probably going to be facing some of those same challenges. Yeah, let's hope not. But you're right. It's getting a little bit concerning for sure. Well, you know, going back to March, late March, early April of 2020, there was a lot of concern. I mean, a lot of farms were really worried. Farmers markets were closed down. Everything was closed down. And there was some serious concern about the work that we were doing. We had a portfolio of of farms and businesses that we had supported, and we didn't know if they were going to be able to stay in business. Fortunately, since then, COVID really has almost had, in a way, sort of a positive impact, I think, on our work, because what we saw was an unfolding of events that really sort of vindicated the work that we do. Everybody knows by now the story of the grocery store shelves being, you know, raided and laid bare with no products on them for several weeks in the spring of 2020. And a lot of people were turning to local food and realizing that, you know, for a lot of new customers who'd never bought from local farms, that this was, wow, this was like something that was there for them when they really needed it. And then once the farmer's market got going and worked through all the regulatory issues and, and you know, restrictions and things like that, you know, they got back up and running and that was very helpful. And so farms really got back on their feet in many ways. And so we have found that COVID, again, just underscored the real ethos behind our work, which is that we need to really seriously look at supporting local food as a means of resilience. And we've been sort of spouting this line since we started, and most of it was around climate change and the weather and how you know local food systems can be more resilient in the face of changing climate and more erratic weather. And now we have the pandemic, and, and so it's an added storyline that we talk about and that we now know that you know, this pandemic is not going away anytime soon. And it could be something that's with us for a long time to come and, you know, new strains that come along and that sort of thing. And so it just helps us to really tell our story about the need for a resilient local food system and communities being able to feed themselves. And then on top of that, we had sort of a third element that came into play this summer with these malware attacks. And so, you know, we now know that that's another threat to our security to sort of this way of life that we're so used to, you know, being able to get food whenever we want. Uh, We're all impacted by the gasoline shortage. and You know, that was not necessarily connected to food, but it certainly emphasizes how much of a risk there is. There was a malware attack on a meat processing plant, which did interrupt some of the supply chain there. 
Yeah, so it was definitely a story of supply chain <laughs> in the last year. And yeah, you're like many of the businesses that I've talked to that there have been some sheepishly admitted silver linings to the pandemic because you can't disallow all of the sad and tragic things that happen. But a lot of local food has found places to flourish in that space. And so, yeah, it's a little yin and yang, I guess. Yeah, sheepish is, is definitely a good way to put it. I, I always feel a little bit self-conscious about, you know, sort of feeling kind of, you know, a little bit giddy about, you know, what the pandemic has done, because obviously there has been a lot of suffering, not just, you know, physical suffering, but economic suffering for a lot of folks. So don't ever want to, you know, really imply anything other than it's been very much a challenge. But yeah, there are silver linings. And I think everyone would agree. We all have our stories of silver linings. Even for those of us who are introverted and have just kind of liked, you know, not having to go out in public as much as usual. So I think we all can relate to that in some way or shape or form. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you beyond funding, can you tell me some other things that your organization does to help local food? Yeah. So we started, you know, with this idea that farms had difficult and small businesses, food businesses have difficulty accessing capital. So that's the fundamental program we have. How can we get capital into the hands of, of those businesses that have difficulty accessing it? Ultimately, though, we really want to create successful businesses or not create, but we want to help perpetuate and, and assist with, you know, viable businesses as, as much as we can. So we're starting to focus more and more on what we can do to support those businesses, whether it's helping them with their bookkeeping, they don't have a website, you know, pointing them in the right direction, helping them with social media, you know, probably a lot of things you're used to doing. So there's just so many elements to running a business. And a lot of farmers are, you know, they're really good at like getting stuff to come out of the ground, like producing food. But most of them are not so good at, at running a business, you know, which is a lot different from many small businesses because a lot of small businesses start up with like the business mindset, like how can I run a business? And then whatever it is they're doing sort of, you know, that's just part of the process. But with farms, it's about like growing food or producing food. And the business part sort of is just kind of an afterthought. And so we're trying to sort of change that narrative, not ourselves. I mean, there are other, certainly a lot of other folks doing this work, but we're just trying to play our role in terms of changing the narrative around small farms and not only getting them to act more like, you know, small businesses, but getting others to respect them as small businesses because they're often not. Like we saw that in the early days of the pandemic when they came out with a lot of the early COVID funding relief that was uh, distributed through SBA, the EIDL program and the PPP programs, they excluded farms because farms were not considered small businesses under the SBA definitions. And so that was really challenging and very frustrating. And it got some quick action on behalf of you know advocates for farms. It got changed, but it was a bottleneck at the beginning. But this is me not understanding all the statistics here, but Percentage wise, like the number of farms in the US, isn't it like crazily skewed to small family enterprises where someone probably has another job to keep food on their tables? Yeah, you're right. It's really hard to pinpoint just how many there are out there. I don't have the numbers exactly off the top of my head, but yeah, there are certainly most of the food that is produced that flows through the supply chain, the 
to grocery stores and chain restaurants comes from big mega farms. But most of the farms, if you look at the numbers, most of the farms out there, you know, that are registered as farms are quote unquote small farms. Now, within that definition, you have a wide variety of flavors. You have hobby farms, you have homestead farms. What the ones we work with are, you know, the true small farms that are doing direct market into the local food system through, you know, farmers market sales and wholesale to, you know, whether through restaurants or local grocery stores or whatever it might be. So really trying to put a number on those, it's kind of tough. Like it's really kind of hard to say like how many of them are out there, but you're right. There are a lot of small farms throughout the U.S. Well, I wanted to go back to a couple of things you said, because one of them, you said that, you know, farmers don't think of themselves as being a business first or business minded first. They're about growing things. And I thought, you know, you'd be surprised at how many people who are in the craft food industry or people who have a passion about a local food recipe or a local food product that they're trying to bring to market, they get so wrapped up in the passion of it that they kind of undervalue the business side of it. And I I suspect that that's some of what happens in farming is that, well, it's just what I do, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I think there's quite a bit of that. I think it's changing, but I think, you know, many farmers do get into farming because they're just so passionate about it. And it's critical that farmers feel that way because it's so difficult to do. And, you know, you've got to have that passion. People certainly don't get into farming to make a lot of money like they might do in a lot of other industries. So that passion needs to be there. But I think what does happen is that passion becomes the one, you know, motivating force. And, you know, farmers will say like, oh, I just love doing this and I don't really care about the money. And that works for some, but I think there's a limit to that. And eventually what happens is they get burned out or they just struggle so badly with, you know, the finances. Usually it's a combination of not making enough money and working such long hours that, you know, physically and mentally, it just takes a toll. And so... Um, it's hard to see the payoff if you're not really yeah, making a wage that supports the effort. There's just only so far that somebody can humanly endure that before they finally give up and give out. So do you provide some sort of access to resources for coaching or support or business structure or things like that beyond just the capital? Yeah, that's what we are constantly developing is a new organization. We don't claim to have all the answers in place already. We're continuing to build out those systems. And to this point, we've been doing much of it through collaboration with other organizations. One we work with very closely is a company called Kitchen Table Consultants. They're based up in the Philadelphia area. They've been around since 2009, providing business consultation and trainings to farms and food businesses throughout a good part of the East Coast. And so we began collaborating with them to provide training to our borrowers. And that relationship has worked really well. We also will collaborate when we can with local SBDC offices. There's one right here in Charlottesville. It's housed in the same office with the uh, Community Investment Collaborative uh, CIC, which is a CDFI here in, in Charlottesville. And so we have collaborated with them a little bit on technical assistance as well. And we're in the process of hopefully expanding our staff internally to be able to provide those resources a little bit more efficiently. Because as our portfolio grows, now we're up to 
We've made 51 loans to date, and some of those have already paid down. So our portfolio currently has about 45 businesses in it. So as it grows, it gets harder to keep track of all of them, but we're determined to do that. And so we're just continuing to look at systems that can allow us to provide each farm the individual need, address each individual need that they have. Can you tell me what does your best client look like? Like what kind of farm or food organization are you looking for? Uh, Yeah, you know, I think that as far as farms go, we are looking for farms that really do have a long-term horizon. And we want to see farms that are going to be around for 10, 20 years and so this kind of gets back to the burnout issue. And so we look at what has the farm done already to, you know, really establish good systems, whether they're financial systems, you know, the marketing that they're doing, their sales channels, that's pretty important. It helps, you know, if they have a track record, we do work with some newer farms. And in those cases, we want to see the farm operators, have they worked somewhere else before? What kind of training do they have? Ideally, we like to see farms that have the capacity and the openness to sort of diversify their revenue. So if the only revenue is, you know, just going to the farmer's market every weekend, that might work for a while. But again, I think there's a risk to that. Again, there's burnout involved because that's really, really hard to do. There's also the lack of control over the market. You know, who knows? Like the market itself may fall apart. They may lose their the land that they're using. And so there's a lot of risk in that. So we want to see farms that, you know, maybe are developing, you know, value added products that are diversifying in some way. Maybe it's through agritourism. We know now a lot of farms might have like an Airbnb property that they're using to make money and they tie that into agritourism where they have, you know, Airbnb renters come in and, you know, will maybe learn through staying on the farm, what sustainable farming is like. Getting involved in consulting, we have one farm that we work with that does a lot of consulting for other farms to help farms learn how to farm better in ways that, you know, protect the soil and biodiversity and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's again, like any business, it's sort of just adaptability, being able to adjust to changing conditions. So that's kind of where there's some overlap. Like my primary clients are Package goods, right? And specifically, I want to work with craft brands who are, who are doing local sourcing, who can trace their ingredients back to a farm, but they need more than one sales channel to have a healthy business. You know, I just interviewed a woman who went into the pandemic and her only channel was food service and selling to restaurants, which meant all of her sales were gone overnight. And so she had to quickly adapt and develop a retail channel and and was quite successful at it. But, you know, so I hear you saying, like, if a farm is only going to the farmer's market, that's just one channel of income. You're looking for people who have a little bit of diversity of where their revenue streams coming. Absolutely. Yeah. Three solid channels would be really good. And hopefully restaurants is not necessarily one of them. It's good to have restaurant business, but farms really, there are some that do it, but there are very few that have a lot of success on just focusing on restaurant business. And then of course, as we saw the pandemic, that can just disappear overnight. Yeah. So how do you find your customer base? Do they come to you or how do you find them? 
Yeah, mostly, yeah. They kind of come to us. We really haven't had to do much aggressive marketing. I think from the very beginning, we have developed, I think, organically and, and spread by word of mouth. So early on, when I co-founded the organization, my co-founder was also involved in local food and knew a lot of farms, had a lot of connections. So when we, you know, planted our stake in the ground and said, okay, we're going to start making loans, we had personal networks that we could reach out to to say, you know, this is now available. And some of the first loans we made were to, you know, farms that I had known for years, which I had been a customer of for many years in the Charlottesville area. And then from there, it's just, you know, word of mouth. I'm very involved and, you know, it's not to say we sit back and just kind of let them come to us. I mean, we do a lot of outreach through other organizations, you know, that we're involved in. So for me personally, like I'm on the board of directors of the Virginia Association for Biological Farming, which is a network of hundreds of farms around Virginia. I'm on the board of the Virginia Farmers Market Association. I'm involved with a local food hub here in Charlottesville. We do a lot of collaborations with them. So just by word of mouth and then partnering again with other organizations, we've grown outside of Virginia. And so the word gets out through organizations that we partner with. So I mentioned this kitchen table consultants in Pennsylvania. That's how we've wound up doing 10, 11 loans now. In Pennsylvania, we're actually talking, we're in discussions with a nonprofit in upstate New York that works with a lot of farms in the Adirondack region. So another example of, you know, how we do outreach through, you know, other organizations that we partner up with. And to this point, yeah, we have not had a problem farms finding us. Usually our biggest problem is this is kind of a slow time of year. Understandably, most farms are focused on farming. They're very busy. But usually our problem is we have too much of a need and not enough funding to always meet it right away. We're fortunate that we've generally been able to keep up with the demand, but it gets a little crazy sometimes, just particularly in the off season, we find that demand really peaks and, you know, just keeping up on the funding side is really where the stressor is more than anything. I'm going to ask you about that because when I think of capital, I think of like big, big buckets of money, but you've also said that you're a three-year-old organization and it sounded like you said you have had about six notes paid down. So to have paid those off in three years, that doesn't sound like hundreds of thousands of dollars. That sounds like buying a piece of equipment that you need or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So is there a range in the needs you fulfill, like small to big, or I'm just curious? Yeah. So we started out making mini microloans, we call them. So our cap was $10,000. So for the first year and a half or so, real well, really up through the end of 2020, we capped our loans at, at 10,000. And that was primarily just to address the fact that, you know, we weren't a large organization and we needed to monitor the supply and the demand. And we wanted to make enough loans that we could manage it based on the funding that we had available. Beginning in 2021, we increased the cap on our loans to 50,000. So our average loan size has grown from, it was a little over $9,000 in 2020. In 2021, our average loan size has increased to about $20,000. So we now are finding that the need there is generally like in the $25,000 range. And that is really mostly for, you know, most of the requests are for equipment, infrastructure, you know, working capital. 
So we've made a few loans of $50,000. We've made quite a few of 25. And, you know, most of them are kind of falling within that range. It's our goal over the long term to be able to loan much more than that. We eventually want to help with land acquisition. That's a big need for farmers to be able to buy land and finding the capital to buy land. So that obviously requires more money. So we're hoping within the next maybe two, three, four years to be able to make hundred dollars to $200,000 loans to support land acquisition. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm going to ask, where does your funding come from? Do you have individual investors or, or how does that work? How do you get the pool of money that you steward? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, as a loan fund, a nonprofit loan fund, we're sort of different than many, many nonprofits where, you know, most nonprofits are used to, you know, raising philanthropic capital to support, you know, their payroll and other administrative costs and then their programming. We have all those needs, but we also have to lend money. So whereas, you know, many nonprofits would be you know, really excited maybe like by a $50,000 grant could go a long way, could, you know, pay a salary or whatever. That's great for us too. The only problem is like, you know, we could get a $50,000 grant. And if we have a loan request for $50,000, you know, it's like it could go right out the door really quickly. So we started out strictly through philanthropic capital, private donations from individuals, as well as grants from several community foundations around the state and then from some foundations nationwide. As we've grown in order to accommodate growth, at some point, it's really difficult to lend money unless you're also borrowing money. It would be really nice if, a, and maybe one of your listeners would be willing to talk to us about, you know, writing a six or seven, even seven figure check that's, you know, straight philanthropy. That would be wonderful. It would be, you know, you know, certainly a lot of flexibility to do our work. But uh, until that time, you know, we do borrow money. We've primarily been looking to borrow money from individual investors. So we have we have a just a simple promissory note that we use. It's an unsecured promissory note that we use for people who are interested in, you know, it's kind of a blend of philanthropy and investing. I mean, it's a return of capital. So they promise that they will get their money back and there's a small interest rate that they can earn. But they also realize that, you know, the work we're doing is high risk and there is always that potential that it could be written off as philanthropy. So that's the ideal way that we hope to grow. And, you know, we know other organizations like ours can grow in that way. We are certified as a community development financial institution, which is CDFI for short. Not many people know what that is. It's okay. But it's a designation that is awarded through the U.S. Treasury Department for organizations like ours that do community lending to underserved populations throughout the country. There's about a thousand of them. There's about 20 or so in Virginia. And what that does is it allows us to apply for some capital through a fund that's administered through the U.S. Treasury Department every year. And then it also opens the door to some other funding sources, mostly through commercial banks that have requirements to lend into underserved areas that they don't typically do through their normal operations. You know, we're looking at that. We have a loan through the USDA. You know, we try to piece things together. But really, what we're learning as we go along, and, and again, I think the key for us is to find impact investments from individuals who are really very aligned with the work that we do and then who understand the work that we do. You're not really going to get that much through a you know commercial bank loan or even through through the U.S. government. So that's kind of our strategy going forward. 
Yeah. So I was going to ask about going forward. Like you talked about the money side of it. What do you hope to be doing for your client base in the coming years? What's next, I guess, on the list? What's next? Oh, wow. Yeah. So I think we really want to continue to perfect, if that's a word we can use because nothing's ever perfect, but we want to improve upon, again, this sort of the additional resources that we can provide. So when somebody comes to us for a loan, we want to be able to make the loan so that we can help their business, but we realize that that's not the only thing, right, that is going to help. And so we want to continue to develop these additional services around helping the farm become a successful business. Whether we do that on our own, more likely, again, in partnership with other organizations that can bring these skills in to help farms and help a food system grow. We want to continue to, I really haven't talked about it yet, but we do a lot of work to really support you know, equity in the food system. And we reach out very aggressively to black and brown farmers because we know historically they have been disenfranchised in the agriculture community and in the lending community. And so we feel that it's really part of our mission to do whatever we can to help change that, to help redress those past inequities and disparities that have existed. We know we can't change the system, but we can do things that can help elevate the conversation and hopefully one day we'll really change the way that we lend money, I mean, not just in the agriculture community, but just overall. I mean, the lending system, it's very beneficial in many ways, but it's also fraught with a lot of peril in terms of just the position that it puts people in, in terms of the leverage and the risk, loss of real assets that can occur when you're over leveraged and you know can't make payments. So we're really, really trying to be a force for change in that regard and speaking out in terms of ways that we can lend differently to uh, particularly the black and brown farmers. That's a really good piece of your mission there. Thank you for bringing that up. I should have put that in my speaking notes, but thank you. Well, if any of my listeners, if the magic works and someone wants to write you a check, or if someone wants to ask you for funding, how would someone find you? The best thing to do is just go to our website. It's uh, foodcap.org, so F-O-O-D-C-A-P.org. And just about, you know, everything is on there in terms of things that we've talked about here today in regard to our mission. There's, you know, contact information, my contact information in there. You can find me and, you know, click on my email. You know, we, we explain how people can donate if they want. So all of all of that's there. But I, I always welcome conversations with people. If anybody ever wants to reach out and, and talk to me more about the work we do or just about food in general, I'm always happy to do that. I think one of the great things about, you know, working in this, as you, I'm sure you know, working in the food business, I mean, who doesn't want to talk about food, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's an easy sell. Like, even though it's tough getting funding, I always find that oh, at least People want to have the conversation because it's always interesting. People can relate to food. Everybody wants to know about it. I think we're turning the corner here, I think, in this country to the point where people are more interested in farming. You know, I think growing up, I know as a kid, like, you know, we never talked about farming. And, you know, I grew up in suburbia. And, you know, there's the running joke that, like, 
they've done these studies in our country that show that kids, you know, think that chocolate milk comes from brown cows, things like that. They just don't know where the food comes from. I think that's changing. Like, I really do. I think we see that like more and you just see it in advertisement, you know, so much more talk, even though some of it might be some pretty brutal greenwashing. Yeah. But nonetheless, as frustrating as greenwashing is, it's still like the conversation, it's still getting the conversation going. So I think that is important. And it does underscore the fact that like more people are aware of, you know, the need to understand more about food, where it's coming from. And there's no doubt in my mind that that's changing. So anyway, I'm always happy to engage in discussions if anybody ever wants to reach out and have that conversation. would love to talk about it. Well, thank you for talking with me about it today. It was really interesting and I was happy to learn more about what you're doing. We get asked questions so many times by farms or farmers and I don't feel like that's my wheelhouse. So I'm always happy to bring resources and information in so that I can point people in the right direction. So thanks for joining me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me, George. I enjoyed it as well. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about how to grow your own food brand, then click on Grow My Brand at vafoodie.com. If you're a lover of local food, then be sure to follow us. We're at vafoodie on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join the conversation and tell us about your adventures with good food, good people, and good brands.